Crossway Church Sermon Audio. They were in bondage. They were slaves in Egypt. And now their masters had decided to curtail their growth as a people. The method of doing that was nothing short of brutal. They were to give up their newborn baby boys so that they could be drowned in the river. Their distressed cries went up to heaven. In the midst of this persecution, a baby boy was born. His mother hatched a desperate plan. She made a basket. She put tar on the outside. She put the baby in the basket and obeyed her master, sort of. She put the baby-filled basket onto the river, gave it a gentle push. The basket floated and then lodged in some reeds by the bank. And when the baby cried, a princess of Egypt drew him up out of the water, sort of like a baptism. That baby, of course, was Moses. And when he was grown, he would save his people from Pharaoh. The persecution of the Hebrews was horrific, but through it, shone a light, a light that shone brighter because of the darkness from which it came. Moses would lead his people out through the sea and on to Sinai, where they would become a mighty nation. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that no matter how dark or distressful or painful any situation may be, we know, God's people, we know that there is a light coming. A light has shown. There is hope. There is life. This was true for ancient Israel. It's true in our lives now. And as we're going to see, it was true at the very beginning of sorrows right there at the fall of mankind into sin. Life shines through the devastation of the fall and refreshes us. The fall of man was complete ruin. It is something that we still feel and lament every day. The destructive effect of the fall is never far from our experience, whether that's loneliness or Struggles with sin, battles with enslavement, whether it's despairing in the world around us, whether it's family trouble, no matter what it may be, we feel the effect of the fall every day. We're continually reminded of it. But sorrow is not all that is happening in our experience. And sorrow is not all that happened in the fall of man. We're going to find a story within the story, and it will breathe life into us. So we'll take our text in three points today. First of all, man fails the test. Man fails the test. And we, we ought to make clear from the very beginning, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of failure here. There's a lot of sorrow here. We're going to see that, but that's not all that we're going to see. Keep your eyes open. 
Now, have you ever watched a movie or read a book and you're just sitting there speaking in your head, you're thinking to yourself, you're, but you're talking to the character or maybe you're yelling at the screen, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't make that bad decision. Don't go in that room. Don't open that door, whatever it may be. Well, that happens in this text. And a test is held out and we're in a bit of suspense, but Probably in our minds and hearts, we're thinking, no, no, don't do it. But it happens every time we read it. A test is held out, and then the result is an absolute wipeout. Let's read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Let's get right to the identity here of the serpent. Snakes or serpents held a lot of intrigue in the ancient world. Just about every pagan religion venerated the snake for one reason or another. It was considered eternal or vigorous or it had the power of healing in it somehow. They made gods out of it. But here, as in much of the creation story, pagan gods are exposed as non-gods and in subjection to the one true God. The serpent is presented in the Bible as another animal, yet there's more to this particular snake We see that in his description. The text says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. So he's given an elevated characteristic that speaks to the nature of his character. Further, this snake presents himself as a counselor, a knower of things. And that sounds like more than an animal. Sure enough, God does make plain to us who this really is. And he's somehow taken on the form of a creature that Adam has named. Look at this passage from Revelation chapter 12. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And, of course, that's speaking of the mighty triumph of Christ over the devil. But nonetheless, we get this description of that ancient serpent, the deceiver of the whole world. So the serpent in Genesis 3 
is Satan the enemy of our soul? This is, an, uh, this is a creature, but he's somehow demonized. He's, it's the devil somehow taken on this form. He's the enemy of our soul, the destroyer, and every interaction he has with humans is to deceive us so that we will be lost to God and destroyed. Make no mistake, this is the power that is in the world. I know we don't like to think of it often. And I also believe it shouldn't occupy too much space in our hearts and minds. But we should not forget that there is a power in the world beyond any human power. And it is the enemy of our soul. And he is targeting us. He is working, even now, as he was then, to tear us down, to destroy humanity, and especially to take down and to tear down the people of God. But the Lord will cause us to stand. Now we know that Satan has entered the scene in the form of a creature of the earth. But before he gets there, what is the condition that the Lord God had put Adam and Eve into? What's the condition? What's the status? Well, it's an amazing condition. It's an amazing situation. It's the best. It's paradise. It's perfect. They had everything. They lacked nothing. God had provided for everything from their life purpose. He gives them purpose. Provides that all the way down to the food that they would eat. Their daily and momentary sustenance. It's interesting to consider on just that one point of the provision of food, and yet there's everything else, but let's just take food. Was it, was it a dozen trees or a few dozen fruit trees lined up beautifully and perfectly, full, branches full of amazing, perfectly ripe fruit coming layer upon layer? Or was it hundreds of trees? Or was it thousands of trees? Or was it tens of thousands of trees? We don't know, but we know it was amazing. If you've ever taken pleasure from any orchard, this orchard is the greatest orchard of all. What an amazing and beautiful provision. What a situation. Within that garden, there were two special trees one of those trees was the tree of life. Eating that fruit would yield eternal life. And then there was the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one that God prohibited them from eating from. It was there. He put it there, but he said, you, you, he commanded them, you must not eat of it. And they were not to eat of that tree because if they did eat of that tree, they would die. Now, the name of that tree is important, the knowledge of good and evil. That name is not simply referring to knowing right and wrong. I think that's part of it. But it's more than that. Rather, that name is pointing to the idea of divine wisdom. It's the idea of having an elevated or a higher knowledge and enlightenment it's, it's the idea of God-like understanding, knowing what God knows, and resolving all the mysteries of life. Isn't that in our hearts even today? Don't we want to know? Oh, there's a mystery. I want to know. 
what's behind that. I want to know what's going on there. Well, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it promises God-like knowledge. Think, think about this. If you knew the future, you could bet on the winning racehorse at the Kentucky Derby, right? Maybe that's not the best example. You would know the stocks that would go up most, right? God-like knowledge, complete success. You become elevated over all. And this was the test. They had to refrain from seeking to take for themselves knowledge that should only belong to God. Knowledge that only does belong to God. And they must not take it for themselves or take it upon themselves because they are not God. So think of it. They have a superabundance of glorious provision in every area that enables them to flourish beyond anything that you or I have ever seen in our entire lifetimes. They are flourishing. They are thriving. It's the beauty and perfections of humanity to the max. And there's only one prohibition. Just one. And that prohibition is connected to trusting God and His goodness. It's, it's saying to God, okay, I'm not you, God. I don't have your knowledge. And I won't reach out my hand and say, I'm going to take for myself the knowledge of God as if something like that could be taken. They must refrain from that one fruit. They have to trust God. They have to trust His goodness. That seems doable, right? That seems doable. You read the story and like, ah, you've got everything. Don't throw it all away for this one thing. And that is where the devil enters. He will tempt Adam to turn his eyes from all that he's been given. He will tempt Adam to put them on the one thing that God says no to. No, you can't be me. And if we step back and think about it, this is often the kind of temptation that we face. God has given us all that we need, right? He's met us. We have everything we need. Sometimes we're, we're so despairing of, of, of life and we oh, it's so terrible. And if we just take that step back and we, we, we look at it and say, you know, actually, I, I have this and this needs met. And, you know, I have the shelter I need and I have the clothing I need and I have the food I need and I have a job. And actually, the future doesn't look so bad and there's hope in, in life and I have Christ. I have the Spirit of God. And, and we could go on and on and be counting our blessings like, wow, I've got everything I need. And yet, we say, no, God, I want what you have said no to. I will not trust that you're good. I suspect that you're withholding from me some of the good that I should have. And I will not settle for that. Isn't that what it means to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's incredibly instructive to see how the serpent deceives Eve and then Adam because the tactics used here are the very same that our own flesh engages with, the same tactics that he uses today. And I tell you, if you study this word for word and line for line, it will blow your mind at his, the, the scheme, the degree of deception. 
the cunning, the craftiness. Well, let's take a look at a little bit of that today. The father of lies sets the pattern. And it's just amazing to see how many deceitful schemes are happening in his opening line. First, he addresses the woman rather than the man. Think about it. He's going to raise his critique. He's going to insert doubt with the man's helper. Not directly with the man, but with his helper. She is perceived as the softer target. She doesn't have ultimate say, but she certainly does have influence. Powerful influence in the man's thinking. And that is where he will attack. Next, he mixes truth and falsehood to raise a not-so-subtle critique of God, almost like he's simply misheard and just needs to straighten things out. He positions himself as curious and as someone in need of clarity. He positions himself as someone needing counsel, but he doesn't want any counsel at all. He's going to give the counsel. And so, he comes and, and, and offers himself as someone in need of her help. And she seems inclined to help him. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There it is. This is an accusation in the form of a question. It's a monstrous accusation. Do you see what the devil is accusing here? Do you see what he's saying? Do you see the criticism of God? Is it clear enough? Did God actually, did he actually, really, did he say? You shouldn't eat of any of the trees. You can't have any of the food. Look at all this great food. You're telling me God actually, what kind of monster would say, hey, you work here, but you can't have any of this. It's a wild accusation. Absolutely false. He knows it's false. And yet Eve takes it as a serious question. She could have had righteous indignation for God. And she could have told him to buzz off. But she goes on to answer him as if this is a good faith question. But look again at his first line. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. This is subtle, and that's what makes it so crafty. Because from one side of his mouth, he wildly accuses God of barbarism. God's making you work here like slaves, but you can't even eat of it. And at the same time, from the other side of his mouth, he diminishes God's authority over the humans. Because God did not say anything. He didn't say that they could eat of all the trees except of one. God commanded in chapter 2, verse 16. God commanded. It was a full expression of his authority. You shall eat of all the trees. You shall not eat of this one tree. There's your prohibition. Do not do it. I command you. You are to obey. See how subtle that is. How crafty. Do you see how he uses truth mixed with lies? But also posturing 
and asserting all at the same time. He is the most bad faith actor of all bad faith actors, but he also sets the pattern for the bad faith actors that we experience today. These tactics are played out continually in human interaction. And brothers and sisters, you and I need to be on the lookout in our own hearts. We need to be mindful to root them out on our own. These kind of tactics flow out of the flesh far more easily than we even understand. Sometimes we haven't even we haven't even planned to use them, and yet in a moment we reach for them to manipulate what we want. I think probably every one of us is guilty of it at some point. Craftiness and subtlety to get what we want. The devil's lying tactics go on and We can't study each of them today, but it is bone-chilling to see just how wicked and murderous the enemy is. He's doing all of this to bring destruction down upon the heads of the humans. Suffice it to say that Eve's responses are lacking. She should have firmly defended the Lord and appealed to Adam for intervention, but instead she takes her cue from the serpent's initiative. How often do we do this? We accept the presuppositions of the bad faith actor. Guess how that's going to turn out? When you let that liar, that deceiver, when you let the bad faith actor set the terms, can you believe this, is, this isn't fair, is it? And you point out to them, hey, your, your, your very beginning proposition is, is false. Notice that, that when, when, when Eve says to him, oh, no, um, it's not that we can't eat of all the trees. We can eat of all the trees except for the one. Notice that the devil doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. I just, I misunderstood. Boy, God's righteous and I'm not. He doesn't do that, does he? He brushes aside this, this paradigm-changing answer. It was only a tactic to get her to engage the conversation and the argumentation on his presuppositions. And it opened the door for catastrophe. Do you see? She took her cue from the serpent's initiative, allowing her to lead him, allowing him to lead her into an evil, broken logic. She eats And she gives some to the pathetically silent, compliant Adam, and he eats. How the serpent must have smiled in that moment of his success, that ancient destroyer and liar. The immediate result of this breach of covenant with the Lord is fascinating. The devil had promised them that they would be enlightened right up to the place of God. And there was some truth in that. They were sort of enlightened. They did see something they never saw before. They, they became aware there was some enlightenment happening in them. You know what they saw? They didn't see the, the bottom of all mysteries. They didn't become God. You know what they saw? They saw that they were naked, and they were now ashamed of themselves. And they left off their cultivation of the garden because now the priority was to cover themselves and to hide from the presence of God. 
Can we see it, friends? Can we see it? That, that, that the devil promised them exaltation. And what did they get? They got decimation. Yeah, they got knowledge. They got knowledge of their exposure, of their nakedness. And now they were taken up with something that God hadn't tasked them with. You see, the enemy promised grandiose and never-ending delights, but when they listened to him, all they got was humiliation. This is the pattern of sin, brothers and sisters. Disobeying God rewards us with humiliation and consequence. It is the path to death. But praise be to God, the story does not end there, or we would all end there, but it does not end there. We have to spend some time on the consequences, but before the end, we're going to see that life shines through the devastation of the fall and refreshes us. And so we saw that man failed the test, but now we're going to see that the consequences explain our experience. And again, this is devastating to our souls, but at the same time, it's helpful because it helps us interpret our world. Yes, the fall is devastating. Every Christian spends time at some point wondering what this would all be like if the fall had been avoided. What if Adam and Eve never fell to begin with? And that's a good endeavor, by the way, because it it points us toward how things should have been, how they ought to be now, and also how they will be in the new heavens and earth. And so even in the sorrow of this story, there's usefulness. There's help. And as painful as it is, Genesis 3 is incredibly important to us because it explains our world, our situation, explains our hearts, our impulses, our desires. That understanding is hard but is helpful. And best of all, Genesis 3 prepares us for the answer, which comes in the form of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that's the answer. That's always the answer. He's the answer. So let me read for you Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 19. Look at Genesis 3, and we'll read verses 9 through 19. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. 
for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so we see that the first consequence of sin is the guilt and the shame. At least in our story, Adam and Eve hide themselves. Not everyone is inclined to do that today. Many people today are proud of their sin. They're proud of what they ought to be ashamed of. They boast in their shame. They believe the way to justify themselves for their shameful acts is to be all the more bold in their sin. Hence pride month. Month. Pride used to be a sin. Even the culture understood that at some point. And now we have pride month. But when God comes around, the truth is exposed, and everyone runs to hide that does not belong to him. We would do well to remember that nothing is hidden from the Lord. Never, ever, ever, ever is anything ever hid from the Lord. Hebrews tells us this too, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any Two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The inspired writer of Hebrews is absolutely referring to the creation account to naked Adam and Eve hiding from God and yet being exposed to Him, not only their situation physically, but the inclinations and intentions of their hearts. But in the garden and in the failure and in their hiding, we can see that God's all-perceiving eye is for their good and is for our good. What happens, brothers and sisters, if God doesn't go looking for Adam and Eve? What happens if he doesn't go look? What happens if he says, I know what they did. Forget them. You know what happens? They wither and they die. And they experience the worst kind of death. A separation from God forever. Separated from the one who made them. Whom they're supposed to enjoy who is the very focal point and purpose of their being. But God doesn't do that, does he? God says, okay, here we go. And he goes down and he speaks to them almost tenderly. They hear him. He calls to them, where are you? Oh, you're hiding? Why are you hiding? Did you do what you weren't supposed to do? Yes, you did. we can see that the Lord has set his eyes on us. And he comes after hiding sinners like us. Hiding. Running away from him. He comes and he gets us. And he sets his love on us. And so we ought to fall before him and cry out to him and run to him and invite him to search our hearts because he is full of truth and grace. And in his son is the forgiveness of every kind of sin. God searching out Adam and Eve, that's mercy. 
That's mercy. Adam and Eve go directly from hiding to blaming. Notice the, uh, the accumulation of the effects of sin. What's going on inside them now? It's shame and it's accusation. It's hatred. This is what comes from sin. Adam was the one who ate last, but he is the one who was interrogated first. Why does God speak to Adam first? Why? Well, a simple reason. Because Adam was supposed to be in charge. If you left your children at home and the oldest one is in charge and you come home and there's spaghetti all over the walls of the kitchen, what's the first thing you say? What's the first thing you do? You turn to the one in charge and you say, what happened here? Who wasted my spaghetti? The Lord God speaks to Adam because the Lord had given him authority over all the others. He had authority over Eve and he had authority over the creatures of the earth. Now, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. What should we then expect of Adam? What's going to come next? Well, Adam, the history here is he's abdicated, he's disobeyed, he's hit himself. So what do we think he's going to do next? Yes, he's going to shift the blame. Like any real man, he's going to blame his wife. Can we see that his blaming another is entirely consistent with sin and disobedience? At each step along the spectrum of rebellion, we have a choice. Brothers and sisters, we have a choice. We can keep going on that spectrum of sin. I'm, not, I'm, sticking, with the, I'm sticking with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double down on this. I'm going to go stronger in this direction because eventually people will leave me alone. And you know that's true, right? Like if you just keep careening down the pathway of sin, blaming others, denying any responsibility, guess what? Eventually people are going to be like, well, I guess that's that. When we do that, we haven't won. We're not in a better place. We've just simply silenced everyone that could help us. And the only thing left now is to bear the consequence of that sin. You know what else we can do when we're on that spectrum of sin? We've abdicated and, and hit ourselves and, and then... We're tempted. You know what we can do? Instead of blaming, we can repent. If we're sinning, we can repent. And if we don't repent, we get worse. More deception, more hardening, more blaming. The blame game didn't work for Adam or Eve, and it doesn't work for us. Now, God doesn't waste his time becoming indignant over the blame games going on. He, know that, he knows that's a game. That may work with us horizontally. It doesn't work with God. God knows exactly who to hold responsible for what. And he gets right down to holding everyone responsible. That's the way it is with God. You can't distract him. You can't get him off topic. You can't slow him down with a motion or a committee or, or a, 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 any, you know, changing the subject. It doesn't work that way with God. He, he drives right to the point of responsibility. And he brings the consequences. He sentences them. It's devastating to humanity, but it also helps us to interpret life. We can see here why things are the way that they are in life. The devil, by the way, is here 
humiliated by God. He's exposed and cast down. It is the creature, the snake, that we see going about on its belly all the days of its life. And when we see that, when we see the snake going about on its belly, we're to remember this moment, to sign to us. This is also the state of Satan in his state right now since Jesus has defeated sin and death. It's like God is saying to the devil right here at the beginning, you want to destroy the earth? You want to destroy what I've created? You want to maim my creatures? Fine. Then you will have a connection to the earth that you will despise. You will consume its dust always. You will be connected to the earth in humiliating fashion. The earth will be to you the place where I cast you down. This is not the victory over God that the devil was aiming for. More importantly, God promises that the woman, with her reproductive gifting, this gift of being able to conceive and carry and bear children, this this gift, this this, uh, mother of all the living gift, That will be the mortal enemy of the devil. The woman will keep producing the image of God. She'll keep producing over and over and over again till the earth is full of the image of God in humanity. And at the end of the day, one of her sons will utterly destroy the devil. And that son is Jesus. But the woman experiences terrible consequences too. One of her primary gifts from God will be tainted, that ability to bring forth life. It will cause her terrible pain. And this is different. It's been noted. It's different for human females than it is for the animals. The animals don't seem to experience that same degree of pain as human women do. Human females do. and Because that is what a woman is. <laughs> That pain in labor, that difficulty, that difficulty that medical science seeks to alleviate and does to a great degree, but still cannot completely alleviate, it's still complex. That pain comes because of sin. It's a consequence of her sin. But also, her purpose for being is also going to be marred. She was made to be a helper for the man. God made her a helper. But now she will desire, instead of being his helper, she'll desire to be his head. She'll desire to take headship from him. She doesn't want to demolish the hierarchy. She wants to be the hierarchy. Please note that. Please note that. All of the systems out there whether it's feminism or Marxism, that, that express, oh, we just want everyone to be equal. Don't ever buy it. They're not going to destroy a, hi- a hierarchy in this world. They want to be the hierarchy. And that's in our hearts too. Both men and women. Women will seek to take it 
unlawfully from men. The, the wife will seek to take headship from her husband. And the husband, the husband will idolize and exalt in his headship. And he'll allow dominion to become dominating. And he'll take authority in a way that is against his wife. And it might not always look like, it usually doesn't look like, um, a, a physical domination, although it can take that form. But it can take some very other crafty and insidious forms of authority. And so we see that. That explains so much of where we're at in this world. It explains so much of our experience or in the marriages around us and in the marriages we're in and even in the church. There can never be peace in marriage or on the earth unless these basic sinful impulses are repented of. It may seem simple, but so much of our striving in marriage is down to this. The longest sentence of all goes to Adam. And it goes to Adam because he was most responsible. He wanted to shift blame, but God places the blame squarely on him. A few years ago, I read a book entitled Extreme Ownership. It's a great book because it's written by two Navy SEALs and it has war stories in it. But I like it for its title, Extreme Ownership. It seems fitting for our times because all the authors are really doing, all they're doing is advocating taking responsibility for the things that you're responsible for. They call it extreme, but the only reason it seems extreme is because there's a pandemic of men running away from responsibility because responsibility is hard and is broken by the curse. But it's not extreme. It's just what we're called to, and it's the very thing God gives us grace for. We have to consider what's happened here from the perspective of responsibility. Back in the story when the serpent was addressing Eve, each time he used the word you or your, he used a plural. In other words, he seems to be addressing both Adam and Eve, or Eve and Adam, I should say. Adam seems to have been within earshot, and yet he is silent. Not a word recorded here from Adam. And you know, that's a key component of wisdom, knowing when to speak and knowing when to be silent. There are many times to be silent, but there are sometimes to speak. And when you bear responsibility and God is being slandered, no matter how crafty the form, that's not the time to be silent. Especially when your wife's happiness is at stake. And secondly, given his responsibilities, Adam should have taken an interest in what was going on. Who is his wife speaking to? What are they talking about? You've had that experience where someone else is on the phone or someone else is having a conversation in the house or nearby, and you just kind of pick up. You aren't listening in, but you kind of pick up something's wrong. There's something serious about the conversation. And maybe you tune in 
a little bit more. That should have been happening for Adam at the first sign of recognizing that something wasn't quite right. Adam should have been checking in. Hi, honey, what's going on? Who are you talking to? What are you talking about? What did he say? What did you say? The order of the garden was his purview. And as the steward of God, and didn't he love the wife that God had given to him? Didn't he want to protect her from danger? Too often men today think to themselves, and I hate to say this on Father's Day, brothers, I do. I only do so because the text brings it to us and we all need it. We need it more than ever. Too often men today think to themselves, if I don't have to get involved here, that's good. All the better because it's too much work and I want to be comfortable and I don't want to bother with it. They tell themselves that they they can't deal with it. I said, I have just too much on my plate. I can't deal with the issues that their wives are involved in. And therefore, they don't. The truth is that even though God has given them that responsibility, they won't step into it. They won't take that burden. They won't bear it. They push it off or they measure it out and say, I've done enough of that already. I'm not doing more. I said, I feel bad to even bring this up on Father's Day. I really do, brothers, because you are commendable for being here today. You're already bearing burdens. You're carrying the responsibilities. So I, 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 I regret bringing it up on Father's Day, but this happened to be the text the Lord has for us. And so I, I stand on God's word. We all stand on God's word. And I encourage you to please step into your responsibility. Look at the mess that can come, look at what happened because Adam did not, look what trouble and pain could have been alleviated for everyone. The same is true for you in the world that God has called you to. Let me, let me raise it this way. Who is bearing the pain with your wife because you refuse to step in? Someone is. You're hurting someone else. They're bearing it because you refuse to step in. That's inevitable. And if anyone should bear the burden with your wife, it ought to be you. It ought to be you. That's your responsibility. And guess what? God gives you the grace to do that. Do you know what Adam should have done here? He should have strode over and crushed the face off of that serpent's head. That's what he should have done. He should have been so indignant and outraged. He should have recognized this as a time for violent war. And he should have saved his wife and humanity. He should have done what Jesus will do on the final day. What Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection. He should have stepped in and killed it. But it was easier to not fight, to not protect, to leave it alone. And we all suffer. We all suffer. Don't we? We all suffer. Unless we're too 
self-righteous with Adam. We would have done the same, and we have done. How do I know we would have done the same? Because we've all done the same. We've all not stepped into our responsibility. Brothers, we all have. I, I certainly have abdicated at times. Now, the world would tell you that there's no difference between male and female. And who are you anyway to insert yourself with authority? That's not the way God designed us. And, and so um, that, that's what the world would say. But we would say, no, that is the way God designed us. We are to take stock, brothers, we're to take stock of our wife's walk with Christ. We're to be aware of whose teaching and counsel she's engaged with. We're to be proactive and take regular initiative to point her to the Lord. And if you don't, brothers, if you don't, who will? And if you don't, brothers, know this, someone will. And if you do, brothers, then you will be tending the garden that the Lord God has given you. And your wife and you will eat the good fruit that nourishes and brings joy. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's there for the enjoyment when husbands step into their role. Now, I don't say these things to tempt the wives this morning. And I've noticed that some of the wives are very attentive right now. I'm not saying these things to tempt you. I'm not looking to arm you against your husband. I think it would be a bad idea to take up arms against him and to leverage these words against him. There's probably a lot of ways that he, ought, that he has taken responsibility. And he ought to be thanked and praised. And we know from Jesus that we ought to be taking the log out of our own eyes before we take the speck out of another's eyes. And so, uh, I don't mean to, to tempt you. Um, but I do mean to call the men to our responsibility. And if we do step in, um, the Lord's going to help us and bless it. Let me make a simple proposal, one that we've talked about for many years. It's widely recommended by all manner of godly people. For decades and decades, it's been recommended. Brothers who are married, please take your wife out for a weekly date. Uh, I'm not trying to create a new law. And... Um, and I've always wanted to be flexible. Yeah, it doesn't have to go out necessarily. You can work together and figure it out. It doesn't necessarily have to be weekly. But here's why I do it weekly, because sometimes I get displaced. And if you don't have a, a weekly planned time, then it can, you know, it can go weeks and weeks or even months without taking that time. But, but I'm seeing this more and more, and I'm seeing the fruit of not doing it. I'm seeing the fruit of men making excuses as to why they don't know their wives and eating the fruit of not knowing their wives. And so I commend this to you and I, I, I encourage you, brothers, take it up. Take initiative towards your wife. Carve out time to be with her. Communicate, I want to be with you. I want to know you. What's going on? What, what are you thinking about? Tell me about it. 
and then share with her the gospel of Christ. You'll know your wife, and you'll get better. You'll get better at sharing the gospel. Please, again, wives, I'm not, I'm not saying this to arm you. I'm saying it to spur the church on in the righteousness of Christ for his glory and for the good and satisfaction of all of us here. None of our, there, there's tons of unique circumstances here. None of us have perfect circumstances. None of us. And so, wives, don't take it like, yeah, if he would just do that, then everything would be perfect. No, it's not a silver bullet. But I'm speaking to the men. I'm speaking to the husbands. Brothers, don't delay. Step into your responsibility. And the Lord will bless it. The consequences for Adam are severe. The ground is cursed. And now your relationship, he says to Adam, with the ground will be acrimonious and laborious. And this is why Murphy's Law is true. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. This is why all work is harder than it should be and produces less of what you want than you hoped. This is why. It's because of the cursing of the ground. And of course, Adam and Eve begin to die, and our bodies will return to the dust from which they were formed. All of this is devastating, and it explains our world now, but that's not all that's happening here. So keep in mind, life shines through the devastation of the fall and refreshes us, refreshes us. I'm going to move through this third point quickly, and I ask for your patience. There's so much going on in these first few chapters of Genesis that are relevant to our lives, I think it's worth a few extra minutes together as God's people under God's word. So, uh, refocus. Actually, you're all looking very focused, so I, I appreciate that, your attentiveness to God's word. But hang in there. It'll be done, and your day will move on. But in these few minutes, let's attune ourselves to God's word. Number three, God's stance heartens us. God's stance for all this heartens us. As painful and devastating as all of this is, that is not all of what happens. If we look more closely, we see some remarkable things, especially about the way that God handles all of this. God handles all of this in a certain manner, a manner that communicates that he still cares. And he cares deeply about Adam and Eve, and he cares deeply about us. And in the midst of sorrow and judgment, you can look here and you can see God, compassionate, tender, loving, giving us hope. There's a lot of light that comes shining through. And if it's shown through then, it shines through now. Let me read for you Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now let's look at some of the life-giving notes in this passage. First, did you notice earlier the utter contempt that God has for our enemy? 
And I, I think I pointed out some of that already. But remember this, God did not interrogate the serpent. He interrogated Eve, he interrogated Adam, but he doesn't interrogate the serpent. He doesn't give that wicked fool a chance to say anything. His accusation that God was withholding good from humans by prohibiting the one tree was the last thing he says in this story, and God cuts him off. But more importantly, as we mentioned earlier, God promised to crush the serpent's head. And Jesus has done this, and Jesus is doing it, and Jesus will do it once and for all in the end. In the meantime, even as we face troubles in this world, God defeats Satan for us when Satan rises up against us. Paul writes to the church in Rome, look at this, what he writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now that's some life-giving knowledge. That when the enemy rises up against us, he may win battles here and there, but, but he will be crushed under the feet of Christ and under our feet, the church of Christ. The Lord hates the enemy of our soul and the righteous bridegroom will not let that old destroyer steal his church away. Be refreshed. Because that's God's commitment. Not only is the Lord crushing Satan, but he has compassion on us. Even in the rebellious state, even in our fallen condition, look, Psalm 103 says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Again, referring to Adam and Eve, the way he made Adam and the fact that Adam and Eve's bodies would go back to the dust when they died. And so, Think of these words of comfort. God knows us. He knows our state. He's inclined toward us. Think of this. God doesn't simply throw Adam and Eve out and abandon them. He knows their frailty. Instead, what does he do? He gives them a clothing upgrade. Clothing of skins. These skins are more hardy than the fig leaves hastily sewn together. Not only would these skins cover better, they also protect them for the hard work they're going to have to do that's in front of them now. Even removing Adam and Eve from the garden was a mercy. Can you imagine living forever in this fallen condition? What if they had taken up the tree of life? What if we lived forever in this fallen sinful state where we're never fully rid of the flesh? Can you imagine it is a mercy to us. That would be torture. That would not be life. Talk about zombies. Even the zombie craze of a few years ago has some useful point. We would be like zombies. And so God will bring these evil days to an end. That is compassion for his people because he's going to give us a new, untainted body. Now, most remarkably, we can see right in the story of betrayal and rebellion and ugly blaming and failure and exile, we can see that life is still in front of us. We don't have it yet. We have it, we have it already in Christ, but it's going to be even fulfilled even more in the future. And so life is still in front of us, everlasting life. God hasn't taken the, that promise, that potential away 
It's there. In fact, he's raised its profile through this terrible event, like a light that shines more brightly because of the darkness around it. And there are a few hints of it here, but let's take one in particular. Consider this. Why was there a prohibition anyway? If God's making the garden, he's putting humans there, he wants them to thrive. Why have even one prohibition? We may not be able to answer that fully. But we know it has to do with glorifying God. Adam and Eve were made to live forever. That's how they were made. They were made to live forever. That's part of the essence of what it means to be human. But unless they ate of the tree of life, they would not live forever. It seems that they had an expiration date built into their bodies that would only change by partaking of the tree of life. Isn't that interesting? And it also seems that disobedience flipped the death switch on or, or revved it up. And so they're there. There's the tree of life. They're meant to live forever, but they have to, they have to activate it by taking the tree of life in a sense. And therefore, it's curious as to why they didn't eat of the tree of life first. You would almost think if you were there, you'd think, well, okay, the first thing I need to do is take a bite of this tree of life. It's kind of like a genie granting you a wish. Everyone knows you ought to wish for an infinite number of wishes. <laughs> well, why didn't they eat of the fruit of the tree of life first? We don't quite know. We only know that they hadn't eaten of it yet. And this whole episode sets up a test. Will Adam and Eve believe, even when tempted, that God is good and can be trusted? Or will they take matters into their own hands, seeking to elevate themselves to the place of God, becoming their own gods? Will they resist the tree of the divine knowledge long enough and partake of the tree of life, passing the test. Well, we know what happened. But this event, this text, points to the reality that the human situation right there was not ultimate. There was, a, there was, there was something inserted into the situation that was not yet finalized. There was a test to be passed. God had planned for this test. And he wanted to show his glory through the salvation of those that had rebelled against him. Can we see how that's more glorious? That those that had willfully rebelled, he of his own will goes to the fullest extent and saves them through the life of his own son. And so we can see that eternal life it's still in view. It's something that shines through the story and continues. And it's standing out there in front of humanity. It's, it's a hope that we have that is fulfilled in Christ alone. We see that God is up to something and we don't fully understand it. We know that he's glorifying himself. But just like Adam and Eve were being called to trust him through all things, the test is still in front of us called to trust him through many things, through many matters that we, 
may not have the capacity to understand yet. God, I tried. I, I've looked at this difficulty from every angle and all I can do is I'm tempted to blame others and to blame you. I'm tempted to try to become God myself. I can't understand it. But even then, we're called to trust him. To trust that he's good. No matter what, and that as we do trust him, we will again come to the tree of life. Life shines through devastation of the fall and refreshing. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.